Hey, take your Bibles and go over to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. This will be our last message on the book of Joel. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the minor prophets. There's 12 of them. Today we'll finish Joel. So now we've covered two of the 10 minor prophets. And then we're going to be jumping into the next one next week. But we're going to finish out Joel here today. Would you do this with me? Would you just stand in reverence to the reading of God's word? We're going to read through Joel chapter 2 all the way into chapter 3. Joel chapter 2. And when you go over to Joel, you can look at Joel chapter um, Joel chapter 2. And I think we'll probably pick it up in, in verse 30. Is everybody with me on that? Joel, Joel chapter 2. And we're going to probably pick it up in... Hold on, my notes aren't working right here. Okay. Joel... Uh, Joel chapter 2 and verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Verse 31. The the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, what a great way to start off our message. Verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now chapter 3. For behold, in the days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations to bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. And on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. And I have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and you've carried my treasure into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks In order to remove them from their own border, behold, I will stir up them from the place with which you have sold them. And I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah. They will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Verse 9. I know you may be thinking, like, what is he reading here? Okay, just hang with me and we'll make explanation. I want to expose you to this text first. Okay, this is this is the Lord talking about his judgment for the, for the nations and locally and historically who've come against his people Israel and all also the evil that the nations have done. Verse 9. In verse 9 through 16 is really an, a, a picture of Armageddon, of the end time, of the second coming, of the final battle. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears and let the weak say, I am a warrior. 
The Lord says, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. And the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Verse 17. So you should know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and the stranger shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a Fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord in the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem to all generations I will avenge their blood. Blood that I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. You may be seated. Now, you may read this text and you may think, I have no idea what we are talking about now, Nick. Well, I'm going to help you with that. As we round out this book of Joel, we now come to the part where he is now talking about judgment that's going to come onto the nations, okay? And let me just tell you something, what we're reading here. In the scriptures, there's different kind of genres, okay? And a genre is a certain type of literary, like when you're reading a certain type of genre, there's history genre, there's poetry genre. What we're dealing here is prophecy genre, but prophecy genre has a spectrum, okay? You have prophecy genre that's kind of more like immediate. For instance, God says to Israel and says, listen, if you don't stop disobeying me, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. I'm going to send you into exile. That's a prophecy. Now, that prophecy has a lot to do with if you correct your ways, maybe this won't this won't happen, right? That's a type of prophecy. They're also at the other end of the spectrum is, is what's called prophetic apocalypse. Isn't that a great word? Everybody say this, prophetic apocalypse. Doesn't that just sound good, right? That's a... That's in the prophecy genre, but it's a little bit different on the opposite spectrum because prophetic, prophetic apocalypse, really, there's nothing that man can really do to change his disposition. This is what God is doing. This is what God is bringing about. And it's really pointing towards the day when the Lord removes all the curse of sin, fulfills every single promise, and all things will be as they should be. It's so cosmic and so infinite from God that there's nothing you can do to withhold or sustain. Sometimes when you see prophecy... There may be a prophecy that says, if you don't do this, then this will happen, which kind of gives men a chance to repent. Or you have other prophecy that's really easier to see, like prophecy pointing towards the Messiah. The hardest type of prophecy genre to deal with is prophetic apocalypse prophecy. It is so hard to interpret. It is hard because you, when you try to interpret it, when you try to interpret it, it's kind of like you get lost in the forest. And when you look at prophetic apocalyptic kind of genres... You have to not get so caught up in the forest, in the trees, that you can't see the forest and see the message that God is giving. Now, when we come to Joel chapter 3, actually, we start in chapter 2, verse 30. We're really getting a mixture of what's called prophetic, apocalyptic kind of genre mixed in with some prophecy genre. You've got prophecy genre in this text that's kind of talking about, hey, local nations, 
here's what's going to happen to you as a result of what you've done to God's people, the Jews. But also, it has a apocalyptic, prophetic kind of kind of genre that it's saying, listen, listen, nations of the world, this is what's going to happen as a result of your rebellion against God. So both are in here. Now, it's very difficult to interpret a po- um, prophetic, apocalyptic kind of literature. One of our greatest theologians of all time was a guy by the name of Calvin, right? Calvin wrote a commentary on every New Testament book except one. Anybody got a guess? Yeah, Revelation. Yeah, that's the one he didn't do, Revelation. Because it's such a difficult book to interpret. It's, it's apocalyptic, prophetic literature. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't, we shouldn't expose ourselves to it because it's in God's word. And if it's in God's word, we're meant to actually do something with it. But here's what I love. Um, prophetic, apocalyptic literature is humbling because it is not easy to interpret. It reminds you that you're yet finite. And this is talking about an infinite God who cannot be completely understood in all his ways, but he has revealed himself enough that we can understand him for what we need to love him, glorify him, and be with him forever. Now, here's two extreme responses to prophetic apocalyptic literature. One is you try to figure out all the details, and then before you know it, you're like, you're like throwing out dates, and you're starting to look at moons and blood moons, and you're doing all sorts of crazy things, and you're writing books and stuff like that, and you're, you're just writing some stupid stuff, right? Those happen all the day. I mean, it's, it, you know, where Christians are like, hey, I've read this book, and this person says that, like, as a result of, like, 9-11, like, we're, you know, this thing's about to wind down, okay? Like, cool your jets. You're going a little bit further with the genre of prophetic apocalypse. But then there's the opposite side where people read it and just go, man, I don't understand Forget this, okay? I'm going over to 1 Corinthians. That makes more sense, right? We want to avoid both extremes. We still want to walk in prophetic, apocalyptic literature. But here's what we got to be careful. As we go at it, don't get too lost in the trees that we don't see the overall forest of what God is doing. And and that's even hard for me because even today as we're looking at it, I'll go for a little bit of the trees but overall, I want to look at the overall forest. And if you look on your outline on the back of that sheet that's an announcement sheet, it's Yahweh's judgment is coming. Yahweh's judgment comes, but it comes with a promise. So when I look overall at this text from chapter 2, verse 30, all the way to the end of chapter 3, there is this idea that Yahweh's judgment is coming, but it comes with a promise. So I see some of the trees I'm going to show you, but also see the whole entire forest that the Lord is faithful to the promises that he's made. First off, I want to just point this to you. If you look in chapter 2 and verse 30, is everybody with me so far? Now that you know this genre of prophetic apocalyptic literature, you can see verse 30. He starts off with this. um, And I will show you wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. Is everybody with me on that? The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This day of the Lord in this text, I believe, is ultimately pointing towards the second coming. The, when, when he comes and he sets back righteousness. When all the nations, including the Antichrist, have tried to come against God's people and the Lord himself. And he does away with all the curse of the fall. Now, I see this is notice verse 30 and 31. It's really, that would fit into this genre of prophetic apocalyptic literature. And here's the thing about prophetic apocalyptic literature. You've always got to catch this to catch the force. This is, when it uses these words, it's trying to describe like, listen, this God is infinite 
and he's bigger than you. And you can't, you can't control him. Later on it, in the text you're going to see, it talks about this idea of people were now taking their plowshares and beating them into weapons. And, but, but here's the deal. You can, beat, you can beat your shovel into weapon all day. But there's not much you're going to do with a shovel when like the heavens, there's blood, fire, smoke, and darkness, and like the moon is turned to blood. Like, there is nothing you're going to do with that shovel. Okay, You might as well pitch that shovel aside and worship the Lord. So when you read it, it's, it's the apocalyptic literature. You're made... You're supposed to think like, this God is holy other than me. He is so much more powerful than I am. The Lord has said that judgment will come. Yahweh has said this. But now look at verse 32. A promise. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? So judgment is coming. Yahweh has said that. But yet there's a promise. That, that mercy and grace are available if you'll bow the knee. This fits in if you were here when we preached through chapter 2, verse 13 of, your, of Joel. It says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious, he is merciful, he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So this is the Lord's promise that he, he wants to show grace and mercy. By the way, it's also his promise that this is, is that you can see even in this text of chapter of verse 30 through 31. You, we see not only the holiness and judgment of God but we see the mercy and grace of God. And both are kissing each other. That's what's so awesome about the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the one place where, 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 where judgment and mercy kissed each other. The holiness of God had to be satisfied. And only his son could satisfy that. See, here's what's happening in Christianity sometimes. From the prayers we pray, to the books we read, to the books that are written, to the songs that are written, to everything. Everything is a lot of times just about the... The grace and mercy of God. I don't want to negate that. But there's no grace and mercy of God if we're not actually being saved from the justice of God. Like both those elements have to be there. And both show his holy character. In fact, you have no grace and mercy if there isn't the holiness of God. So in this text you see that Yahweh is Yahweh will bring judgment, but he brings this judgment with a promise. Okay? So let's kind of look through the outline. Yahweh's judgment comes with a promise. Look at verse 1 through 3 of your text. So we already see of, of kind of how this mixes together. We see verse 30 and 31, apocalyptic literature. This points us over to Matthew 24. We see in Revelation kind of cosmic disturbances are happening. This lets man know that no matter what you do with your shovel, it's not going to help. This God is so much infinite and more powerful. You must bow the knee. You must call out to him. And the Lord is wants to be merciful and save. Now... You look at chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, and on your outline it says, Yahweh's judgment on the global nations for their persecution of Jews throughout history. So one of the things the Lord has promised is that, a couple things. One is, he has, he has his people in the Old Testament that he covenanted with. It was basically, these are going to be the people to bring about the Messiah. And part of that promise is he would rule and reign from Jerusalem. And, and he has made a promise, and he has said that like if, if you hurt these people, if you hurt my people, the Jews, then this will not be good for you. And when you look through the history of the Bible, anytime someone really tried to do something bad to the Jews, it usually didn't end up going well for them, right? Just look at Pharaoh when it came to Egypt. Things usually didn't work out well for you. There's something that the Lord has promised to those people, not because of this intrinsic, like they're saved because of that. A Jewish person would have to trust in the Messiah just like we would. But there is something for that ethnic people. And we see here in our text that the Lord calls out kind of a far prophecy. It says in verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time, 
When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Hold your thought on Jehoshaphat, that valley. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. I want to, I'll parallel that with Armageddon. And I will enter into judgment with them there. And on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So we first see that Yahweh bringing judgment, the great I am, bringing judgment on the global nations for their persecution of Jews throughout history. And it's happened throughout history. In fact, it's said that this kind of Jewish proverb is misfortune avoids a Jew. This other one Jewish scholar had said this, we Jews are waterproof and fireproof. God has blessed us so that nobody can successfully curse us and we shall be here long after our enemies have perished. So the Lord in his judgment in this text is calling out the nations that have come out and their ultimate judgment that's going to come this day. Remember, we're dealing with a prophetic book here. And, and if you're Jewish, this is a hope because remember, these people were going into exile. It looked like everything was lost. So this would give them some kind of hope that, that like, this is going to be okay. Our Lord is going to take care of us. He is a strong refuge. It also lets you know this, that no evil that comes against God's people, even outside of Jew. I'm talking about even when you're his people today, anything that happens to you, the Lord, the Lord knows how to take care of that and you're going to be okay. But it's really interesting. Um, if you've ever looked at a map, and if Daniel, if you'll throw this first picture up. Like when you start reading like the book of Revelation and you see the, the, the final battle that gets waged in this period, this uh, land of Israel, it really is no kind of surprise. If you look at a current map, you see the kind of white dot, that's Israel right now, surrounded by 22 Islamic nations 240 times its size, 60 times its population. You start to see how the final battle on the earth is going to descend in this kind of locale. You kind of see that. Even when you see that when there's a people that's so marginal and small compared to the rest. Now, now that doesn't mean people say, Nick, are you saying that you're a Zionist, that you sign off on everything an Israeli government would do? It's a secular government. No, but what I'm pointing out to you is this. When you look in prophecy here, you see that the Lord says, for what's been done to my people. And if you look all through history, if there's been ever a people that have been scattered, have been traded, have been treated like like traffic, like verse three, traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine. If you've ever seen someone be trafficked among the world's population, it's been Jewish people. If there's been a people that has ever been consistently um, gone against, if you've ever seen so much anti-Semitism, it's been with that people towards them. So the Lord says for in this text that my people, I will take care of them. And and what has happened to them, what the nations have done to them, I will come back on that. I will judge that. I will take care of that. See, the Lord's judgment comes with a promise. And that promise is whatever he's what he's told the Jewish people, he will he will fulfill. Now, number two, it's not only that, but look, number two on your outline, Yahweh's judgment on the local nations for the persecution of Jews. So verse one through three, by the way, this is what makes apocalyptic literature so hard. It floats between. Isn't that funny that God decides to not go by the rules of how I want him to go by the rules, right? I would rather him make this really easy and put it where I can understand this really easy. But the Lord just decides to not do things my way. Maybe one of these days he will, but probably not. 
So verse 4 through 8, he now switches back over to what I would say, we're looking at verse 1 through 3, really flows into this kind of apocalyptic prophetic thing. But it's, it's, it's pointing towards the Armageddon. It's pointing towards the Lord restoring all things as it should be. And then he flips back off the kind of prophecy, a local prophecy. Look in verse 4, he says this. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? This is a local thing now. Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Tyre, Sidon, the regions of Philistia, they had come against Israel. I want to do this. Will you fill that next picture up just so you have kind of a, a reference of where these nations might be? Oh, man, I left my laser pointer in my office. I was going to be so cool today. Okay, um, well, that one's not working. Can you see the red at the top? Tyre and Sidon are located in that area, okay? Um, and you see that green right there? That's Philistia, right? By the way, you also see Edom down there, right, in the red. And if you were to go to the west, you'd see Egypt. You see the, it says the kingdom of Israel and kingdom of, of Judah right here in the middle and the blue and the kind of purple. What he's saying is these, these kingdoms were perpetually coming. Oh, look at this. We got a laser. Well, there's a real scientific reason for that, but I don't know it. So, so what you find in the red and the green, even the red down here at the bottom, even you've got the yellow, the Ammonites, these kingdoms had come against them. And now in the text, I think it's referring back to a time when these people, Tyre and Sidon, Philistia, they had kind of come together and came against King Jehoram. But these people had systemically had been against God's people and had done wrong towards them. Look over in, uh, if you were to look over in, at the end of chapter 3, in verse, eight, uh, in verse 19, it says, Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in the land. If you were to look at Edom today, it's a pretty desolate kind of place. These, these, it's, it's pointing to, in this text, it's pointing to now, the, it's going kind of local prophecy, where the children of Israel return back from, from their Babylonian and Assyrian captivity by the Persian kingdom. Okay, so... This is even pointing back that when Israel gets to come back to their land at a later point, that they will not be under the thumb of these people anymore. In fact, the roles will be reversed. He says in verse 5, For you have taken my silver and my gold and carried my riches to your temples. That's what these Philistines have done. That's what these Phoenicians have done. That's what these Edomites have done. That's what Egypt has done. Verse 6, You've sold my people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, in order to remove them far off their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place from which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. Israel would once again, under King Cyrus, under the Persian kingdom, years later, would come back to the land, would come back and read the book of Nehemiah, and you'll start to see some of what we're talking about fulfilled. Verse 8, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans. To a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. The Sabaeans kind of live in that, that, that peninsula right where you see the Ishmaelites. So what you find here is even a local prophecy. So Yahweh judges the local nations for their persecutions of the Jews. So, so thus far we've seen in verse 1 through 3 that there's God's judgment on the global nations for the persecution of Jews all throughout history. But not only that, we see Yahweh's judgment on the local nations for the persecution of Jews. 
And now, number three on your outline, we see Yahweh's judgment on the global nations for their rebellion against him. So, I mean, now I know it's like, oh man, I got up today and I came to talk about judgment. <laughs> like, what in the world? Well, I would say this. Here's why we need to hear this. Because we need to keep the character of God in perspective, right? We all the time want to make God into this God of our own fashion. We do. We always want to make him. In fact, if, if you were to go to the average Christian bookstore, which hardly exists now. In fact, I think our last one is about to shut down in the area. So I don't know where you're going to, you know, I don't know where you're going to get Christian books in the future. Probably Amazon. I think they own everything, right? Them, them and Disney, right? But nonetheless, I'm sure Disney's like the mark of the beast someday, whatever. So, sorry, did that hurt your heart? Okay. So, we got a lot of Mickey Mouse Club people here. So, here's the deal. When you come to verse 9 through 16, you start to see, his, the, the, you start to see the final judgment. Yahweh's final judgment coming on the nations for their rebellion against him. And, and what you want to find is this. The Lord is faithful. He is He is holy. And in his holiness, he has to judge sin. And when you, here's the thing that people look at. People look at this idea that people really aren't that bad. They really don't rebel that much against the God of heaven. And what I would say is this. You've probably lived in the West way too long to understand that people actually are bad, right? If you were to go to Venezuela today, you would discover just how bad people can get. I was reading a story the other day where like one of the last hospitals that are still open and the pictures they were showing were where these kids were malnutrition, not even taking care of this hospital because that whole country is in disruin because there's been utter corruption by their government. Now, if you live in Venezuela, you're probably going to say like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, man is that bad. We don't really see that because we, have, we experience such great grace and blessings. Like for the most part, our bellies are full. But yet man is rebellious against the Lord and the Lord will judge that. And man's rebellion is so epic that you're going to see in verses 9 through 16 that even in the midst of the infinite God showing himself and putting on great display, man is still trying to take a shovel and beat it into a sword. Okay? It and it's not going to help. The best thing any of us can ever do is just put down the shovel, please. Now let's look at it. Look at verse 9 through 16. By the way, if you ever to read over, you don't have to turn over there, but when you look in Revelation 16, it says that the final battle will happen at Armageddon, the valley of Megiddo. It says in Revelation 16, 16, and they assembled at that place in the Hebrew called Armageddon. This is where the Antichrist, the false prophet, all the nations unite as they, as all the nations, finite beings, try to challenge the infinite God. Zechariah 4.14 says that when this happens, the Lord will set his foot back on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Here's what Zechariah 14.4, you don't have to turn over there. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west by a very large valley. So that one half of the mountain shall be removed northward and the other half southward. So in this, in this final battle, the Lord's going to set foot back on the Mount of Olives. Does anybody know what mountain he last had his foot on? Trick question. It's not. It's the Mount of Olives. Remember in Acts one eleven, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you in the same way shall return from heaven. That's where Jesus ascended, was from the Mount of Olives, and that will be where he descends again. 
The scriptures reveal in Zechariah that when he sets foot on this mountain, that it will be split in two, that it will, it will go from east to west, and that this huge valley will be, will emerge where the final cosmic battle will happen, where all the nations will finally be a united nations and will come together. And, and the kind of thought is, well, listen, he, they're going to look at the prophetic apocalyptic power of the infinite God. I mean, how, I don't know how you can not see a mountain split and not think like this dude is boss. And yet they're going to say, we're going to beat our shovels into a sword and we're going to beat you. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, I've tried to, I've tried to dig to China with a shovel. I didn't get very far, right? Like, I don't know why, but, but a shovel's really not going to help you when that day comes. But yet the people will try to do it. Look in Joel chapter 3, you, you start to see this kind of come out. By the way, I want to show you a couple pictures about this just so you kind of see. Um, now, Revelation, do this. Uh, take me to the third picture. Man, I wish I had my, my pointer here. Actually, Ken, uh, Trinity, will you do me a favor? Will you run to the kitchen area? And my backpack is right next to the um, microwave, right here in this little kitchen area. My laser pointer is in there. But we're going to start doing it right here. Does everybody see this picture? Now, you see the middle where it says Jerusalem? That's where the Mount of Olives is, right? Now, see the very top of that red line? You see where it says Megiddo? Does everybody see that? That's where, that's Megiddo. That's what's describing where Armageddon is going to happen. Now, you see the bottom where it says Edom right here? Isaiah tells us that's where the cosmic ba- that's where the final battle is going to happen. Now, some would say this. Now, you have to be careful when you're in apocalyptic prophetic literature. Remember, I said you have to be careful that you don't get too far into the trees that you can't see the forest. So, I'm getting into the trees a little bit because I think there's a lot in Scripture about this. But the wonder is this: How are the nations of the world going to come into this cosmic battle against the Lord in this area? How can that many people come about? Well. Oh, you found it. Great. Boom. Now look how fancy I am. Oh, man. What's it? It works on that, but not that. Man, there's a scientific explanation for that, of which I don't know. Well, thank you, baby. So, man, that really blew it. I'm going to be awkward again. Y'all remember when I did this like a couple months ago? Okay. Yeah, I've got insurance. Okay. The Mount of Olives is right here. It's said in prophecy that the Lord will set his foot on the Mount of Olives. It'll split. It'll split and open up. And what is supposed is that when he splits that mountain, it's going to create a valley all the way to Megiddo, to Edom in the scriptures, when Isaiah mentions it. And this is over from Revelation 16. And that this huge valley will now emerge right here. Now, remember you saw the Valley of Jehoshaphat? You remember him saying that a while ago? You know, there's no valley of Jehoshaphat in the scriptures. So what is that referring to? Many would say this, that this is going to be the valley of Jehoshaphat. That word Jehoshaphat means judgment, means Yahweh judges. So the thought is that this final cosmic battle is going to take place. And this, this is going to, when he comes back and sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, it'll split it and it'll create this huge valley. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's already that kind of cataclysmic moving and, and a valley being just broadened already there, a little bit of this is something called the Kidron Valley that already exists today. Go to the next picture. You kind of see the, this valley already exists today. This is where the Temple Mount is. 
this is the Mount of Olives. The thought is that, that, that Zechariah 14.4 says he sets foot on this. It, it splits this Kidron Valley, becomes even a larger valley. It extends all the way to the plains of Megiddo and all the way down to Edom. And this is where this is going to give the ample room for the final cosmic battle to happen. Go to the next picture. This is the Kidron Valley right now. This is the Mount of Olives right here. I'll kind of show you now a, a top view. Now go back to that, for that, that two pictures from this. That one's too. So the thought is, here's that battle. Here's that battle that's coming. Now, do this. Go to verse 9. The thought is, this is where verse 9 through 16 is happening. Now remember, we're dealing with prophetic apocalyptic literature. So... We have to be careful not to get too far into the trees. So if you're here and you're kind of like, I don't think that's literally going to happen. That's going to be cataclysmic. I would say that's fine. Follow the force. The force is this. In the end, we see enough evidence that the nations will try to unite and wage war against the king, Yahweh. But yet in the end, they'll never be able to overcome him. But yet I see enough in scripture that it seems like something earth shaking is going to happen. So look over at verse 9. We now see, and this is my third point, that... Yahweh comes to judge the nations for their evil. Verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. The nations get their best soldiers. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. Take your shovels. Try to make a, a sword. Your pruning hooks into spears. We know about this. I mean, at World War II, America converted a lot of its factories to, try, to conventional warfare. No doubt it seems like that at the final battle that that's what man's going to do. But yet he's puny in the sight of an infinite God. He even says this, let the weak say I am a warrior. Even those who aren't warrior, even those that are weak are in such rebellion against God that they will think if we all unite, even the weakest of us, even, the, even those who aren't warriors on the battlefield will want to join in in this battle. It says in verse 11, hasten and come. All you surrounding nations and gather yourselves together. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come into the valley of, what does it say? Jehoshaphat. It means the, the judgment of Yahweh. So there's this cosmic, there's this battle that's happening. Yahweh, Jesus comes back. He sets foot on the Mount of Olives. It splits in two, creates this huge, this huge 180 mile rift from from Megiddo all the way down to Edom. It says, and many would say, this is going to be the Valley of Jehoshaphat since that doesn't exist today. He says, there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is right. When a harvest is right, you use a sickle to cut that harvest so that you can now have access to that harvest. So it seems like what the, what the Lord's saying in this uh, apocalyptic prophetic literature is that God's judgment is ripe now. That man's rebellion against God, all his evil and sin have ripened. Some people would say sometimes, why does evil still continue to happen on the earth? I would say one of the reasons, one, not the only, but one, is that when that day of judgment comes, man will have no excuse in God's sight. When man is allowed to explore the full potential of his evilness, he will have no excuse. And when that day comes... It doesn't matter. He will go. He, even with cosmic disturbance, 
he will still try to take his shovel and beat it into a sword, thinking that only if humanity could unite together, they could beat this infinite God. But that could never happen. Finite can't beat out infinite. Go in, tread for the wine press is full. A wine press at harvest time, all the wine press would be filled with grapes, and that's what you would squish on, and you would get your wine. So the, the nations have all sinned in such a way and done so much evil that they're, the harvest that is ripe for them to be judged and the wine press of judgment is full and they're about to, they're about to be squeezed out. It says in the text of verse 13, the vats overflow and their evil is what church? Great. It's great evil. So we saw that God judges the global nations for what they've done to the Jews and we've seen that God judges the local nations for what they've done to the Jews and now God's judging all the nations for their evil is great. I mean, listen, uh, there's nothing really righteous about us. Our country alone, over 60 million abortions. Over 60 million we've killed and called it a righteous choice. Germany and World War II killed over, well over 6 million Jews. Cambodia in the 70s killed 3 million people. In the 90s, in the Rwanda genocide, 1 million in China, Mao Zedong from the 50s to the 60s killed 45 million people. I mean, we're talking about like wiping out whole state populations in America. Russia, during Stalin's reign, 20 million. I don't think when that day comes, anybody can say we're innocent of what's happened. I mean, like we just haven't really taken a, a true evaluation of just how far depravity takes us. So we see a description of this. If you were to look at Revelation 14 in verse 19 through 20, it says this. And with a loud voice, the one had a sharp sickle. Put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So an angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is describing Armageddon. And the, and the winepress was trodden outside the city. The blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for a hundred for one thousand six hundred stadia, which is about one hundred and eighty miles. Guess how far Megiddo to Edom is? About one hundred and eighty miles. When you read even Revelation, like how is blood going up to the horse's bridle? Well, if there's a valley and that much bloodshed, and the nations have all descended. I mean, I think you're going to see even those surrounding nations, those that I showed you earlier, that, that, that those nations that even surround Israel, they're going to be participants. I think lots of nations are going to be participants. I think all the nations are going to want to be participants. It's going to be, it's going to be filled with blood up to the horse's bridle when you've got such a vast, when you've got such a vast area where the nations can now descend. It says in verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. You know, it's interesting. It called this the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the judgment of Yahweh, right? Now get this. Now it's calling it the Valley of Decision. What does that mean? It's saying this. Those who were there, the finite man who was united to rebel against Yahweh, they've made their decision. Their decision is clear. Now listen, you don't start beating your shovel into a sword unless you really made a decision, okay? Like you've had to push in and go like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah, I don't care that there's no sun coming out. Like I don't care that there's been all this cosmic disturbance. I'm beating the shovel into a sword. Like you have made your decision. And he says this, for the day the Lord is near in the valley decision. Man has made his decision and the Lord is fulfilling his promise in this decision. The Lord is coming to judge 
By the way, just so you know, the time to make a decision for the Lord is now. At this, this valley of decision is too late. Today's a good time to make this decision to follow him. Verse 15, the sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. Once again, we see apocalyptic genre. We see that, that in the midst of them making a decision, they're still rebelling against the Lord. Even in the midst of cosmic disturbances, they still won't put down the shovel. Verse 16, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earthquake. If there really is a valley of Jehoshaphat that develops here in the, in the result of this, in this 180 mile prophetic stretch, this would seem to scare me. But those who are in rebellion against the Lord, they don't put down their shovels. Now I love this. It says that the Lord, though, remember, Yahweh, Yahweh brings judgment, but he brings it with a promise. Earlier we saw that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'd escape it. But look right here. Even for his people, and the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. You know, prophetically, it's said that when this, when this happens, one of the reasons the nations are descending on this area is not only because... They want to rebel against the Lord, but they're coming against God's people. This is why they, there's a belief that there's going to be a great Jewish revival. There's going to be a great Jewish turning to the Lord. And that the, that, that the nations are going to blame all the, all the destructive tribulation. They're going to try to blame it on the people. And it's going to be the Jewish people. And they're going to come against them, all these Jewish people that have converted to the Lord. It says in Revelation 12, verse 14 through 17... But the woman was given, describing Israel, was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. The serpent describing Satan in this apocalyptic literature. To the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a times. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river the dragon had poured out of his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman. And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. The Antichrist is trying to come after God's people. And in those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So you even see this in, in Revelation. In its apocalyptic literature, it describes a time where when this, cause, when this battle is happening, that God's people are being attacked, but God even keeps his promise and he takes care of his people. The people that are in that area. So in some way, he miraculously takes care of them. Which, this is what I love. In the midst of Yahweh's judgment... He has promises that he keeps, right? He, in the midst of his judgment, earlier in the text, we see this. Just call on him, right? We saw that in chapter 2, verse 30. Cosmic things are happening, call on him, okay? You can't win with your shovel. Put your shovel down and call on him. We see right here, the, the nations of the world are beating their shovel into weapons. And what does it say? Rest in him. Take refuge in him. There's a promise. So even in the midst of his judgment, I mean, I don't like talking about his judgment, but I do know this. His judgment tells me that I'm going to be safe. His judgment pointed to me a long time ago to bow the knee. Now, I don't like people. There's this thing. You got to be careful. When you're telling people about salvation, sometimes you got to be careful not to scare them out of hell into heaven. But you do got to be truthful and honest that if you don't bow the knee and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior and he becomes Lord and Savior, that yes, you will be judged for your sins and yes, you will experience the right white hot wrath of God. We can't lie about that kind of thing. That is true. And if that thought causes a person to say, I want him, then I would say, praise God. Because his judgment comes with a promise. Now let's end it off here. Look in chapter 17, verse 21. God has also made promises to restore 
restore. When you look in chapter, when you look in verse, uh, <clears throat> actually, I, when you, I'm, look, I'm looking at chapter 2 now. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. No wonder that didn't look right. Chapter 3, verse 17. Now we see the Lord restoring. Now here's what's interesting. You see here, I, I think what we're really dealing is with steel is this prophetic apocalyptic genre. By the way, as we keep going through the, 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 the minor prophets, and by the way, this is not an easy book to go through, and none of these books are easy books to go through. There's a reason why no one ever probably rarely preaches on the minor prophets. That's why if you've ever read a minor prophet, you've probably started off in chapter 1 and you said, okay, back to Matthew, okay? <laughs> like, back to John, I really get it. Like, I get it. But the Lord put it in his word. Like, aren't we still to study that word? So kudos for you for showing up for message 9 of the minor prophets, right? Like, we're all a bunch of rotten sinners still, but kudos to us for continuing to make it through this book. God showed us some things in it. And here I see. See the Lord has made promises. To the Jewish people. That he would rule and reign. From the throne of David. That he would rule from their land. So I see that still a promise he's going to fulfill. But not only that. But he's promised to bring down a new Jerusalem. And that he would do away with the curse. That there would be a, a new heaven and a new earth. So that promise that he makes to the earthly Jerusalem extends to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the Lord saying that like all the promises I make, I keep my promises. So I, so as, as negative as judgment seems to be for us, if it's God's people, Yahweh's judgment has a promise. Like Yahweh's judgment brings us to the ultimate promise that he's promised. And the ultimate promise is not just that, that I would escape hell and get heaven. That's great. But his ultimate promise is that everything is coming back to this thing where he removes the curse he, of the fall. He restores creation. All things will be as it should be. Everything will be ruled and reigned underneath him. There'll be the new heaven, new earth. The new Jerusalem will be brought down. And like we will experience unending bliss. We will, when we go to work each day, it won't feel like it's two steps forward and one step back. Like our relationships will no longer either fracture. People won't misunderstand us or malign us anymore. Like we're all looking for that day. And he makes that promise. Verse 17, he says this. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. This is speaking of Jerusalem, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. So we see that I I don't think he's talking from an earthly realm. I don't think he's talking like in our here and now. I think he's pointing to a, a future day for Jerusalem. Although I will say this, there is nothing uncommon about Jerusalem, about Israel today having a, a nation state. There's nothing uncommon about that. That helps to point you towards the fact that God fulfills his promises. Uh, even this, do you know this? That in World War I, when Britain fought against the Ottoman Empire, guess what area it was? In the Valley of Megiddo, right? In Armageddon. That basically, when World War I, when British got control of that area, and then later on, after World War II, when looking at systemic injustices for the Jews, you know, the British government said, we got to give them their own land, and that's when they gave it. They got that as a result of fighting a battle in Megiddo. That's free. Just kind of think about that in the back of your mind. So we see this, that the Lord ultimately brings back this, this new Jerusalem. He rules and reigns. Now, if you want to say this is during the millennium leading into the eternity, that's great. Or if you're pointing this towards the new Jerusalem, that's great. I don't, I don't have to get into the, the trees on this one. I just want to look at the forest. And the forest is this. He will restore and fulfill his promises. What he promises, he always does. Look in verse 18. 
I think it's talking about eternal because it says, and strangers shall never again pass through in verse 17. Jerusalem will never have to fear the onslaught of its enemies again. And you can even see that today, that idea that Jerusalem defends itself even today, although many enemies would want to wipe it out. Look verse 18. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, but it's non-alcoholic, so don't worry. And the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord in the valley, in the valley of Shittim. So we see this in verse 20. And Judah shall be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem to all generations. So we see this in verse 21. I will avenge their blood. The blood is not blood. I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. So the Lord says, listen. All the wrong that's come against Israel, come against my land, come against Jerusalem. I will do away with it and I will bring restoration to it just like I promised. And I will rule and reign from it and I will bring down a new heaven, new earth. And I will do everything that I have ever promised to you. So here's the deal. I know judgment and that idea is not cool. But I also know this. Yahweh's judgment always brings promises. And when he promises judgment... That tells us a couple things. One is this. Hit the knees. Say, call out to the Lord. Do exactly what chapter 2 verse 31 says is call out to the Lord. Repent. Put down your shovel. It means that when judgment comes, this means that we don't have to fear that the Lord's going to take care of us. That whatever persecution could ever come to us. Even if like sometimes we're worried as Christians about what might even happen in our land. I will tell you this. If we start to become a persecuted people, you and I are going to be okay in the end. I'd also tell you this, that every promise God has ever made, he will fulfill. What promise he's made to the ethnic people of Israel, he'll fulfill. And what promises he's made to us, he will fulfill. Now you've noticed I keep calling him Yahweh because every time you see in our the minor prophets, you see the Lord's name, they capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, right? That, and remember, the word Yahweh means I am what I am. It's the thing that like if God was to describe the infinite God to the finite puny man, it's hard for him to describe himself because our brains would try to just bust open wide. There'd be no way we could contain what he is. So he just says, I am what I am. Now, here's what I love about that. Because he is what he is, he keeps his promises. Because you and I cannot keep our promises. <laughs> you ever notice that? Like, I can't keep my promises. I mean, it, like I'll make a promise at the beginning of the day and I've broke it by the afternoon. Okay, it's like, hey, listen, we're going to go to Roadhouse today. I'm not going to eat that bread. I'm going to resist it. I make that promise to myself. I go in. They put the bread down the table. The next thing that comes out of my mouth is we're going to need more butter. All right. Like, I can't even keep my own promises. I can't even keep the promises I want to keep sometimes. Like, hey, listen, I'll be there. I'll be there. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll be there at three o'clock. And like I show up at like 30 minutes later and say, you know, hey, I'll be there in five minutes. Y'all know that, right? You ever done that? I'll be there in five minutes. You show up like 45 minutes later. <laughs> you fooled nobody. Like sometimes we can't even keep our own promises. But Yahweh never runs into that. Yahweh never runs late. Yahweh's car never breaks down. Yahweh never buckles under and says, I need some butter with this bread because I'm just going to cave in now. Like Yahweh is the great I am and the great I am always keeps his promises. This is what I love about this book. This is why I would say this, when we look and we see what the nations start to do, they beat their plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears. And even the weak are kind of raising their fists at the Lord. Just put your shovel down. 
That's the best thing anybody could do in life. Just put your shovel down. Like it's not going to work. God has given us enough evidence, enough cosmic disturbance in his apocalyptic literature to say like every shovel you try to turn into a weapon is just puny and ineffective when you come before an infinite God. So put your shovel down. Like as we end out Joel, we're like, man, what do I think about Joel? Like just put your shovel down. If, if you have been fighting the Lord as he's been trying to call you to salvation, just put your shovel down and say, Lord, here am I. Like, I'm going to trust you. Just put your shovel down. Like, it's, it's not worth it. When you really look at, like, verse 9 through 12, and you see, and you read this cosmic battle, you read this battle that's happening, you're like, this is ridiculous that these people would try to fight against a guy that could create a valley 180 miles deep and think that you can do anything with a plow. Yeah, so just put your shovel down. Like, you're not going to beat this infinite God. He is the great I am. Hey, put our shovel down. We don't have to be frustrated when things don't work out our way. He is trustworthy in all his judgments. Put your shovel down. The promises that he's made to us, you can put your shovel down. Like you can lead your wife as Christ has called us to lead the church. Like you can love sacrificially even if you get nothing in return because you can just put your shovel down. You can, you can walk in the ways that the Lord has for you. Just put your shovel down. Like your shovel, you, you beat it as much as you can, but it's not going to work. I love what Micah says. Micah actually says the opposite, that, when pe- that, that during the kingdom, that people kind of know what's right, and they take their sword and they beat it back into a plow. <laughs> They're just like, yeah, th- th- this isn't going to work. Let's, let's turn it back into a shovel. Like, I learned this one a long time ago. So let's, let's put our shovels down. Or better yet, maybe, maybe it's not putting your shovel down. It's time to take the sword and beat it back into a shovel. And really come to the Lord because he's infinite, we're finite, and there's nothing else we can do. Would you stand to me as we praise him? Thank you for a chance to talk about you. We acknowledge as finite, puny, small people that Joel chapter 3 is not easy to understand. I even know that our souls, as we looked at this morning, it was, man, I need more, more coffee for this. Oh God, this is difficult. But boy, is it humbling. Thank you for it. Thank you for your word. Thank you as we continue on to be faithful to the next 10 books of the Minor Prophets, seeking your message, the major messages you have for us. If there's someone here right now who has not put their shovel down and said, Jesus, you are Lord and you are Savior, I trust, I trust in the work of the cross. I will follow you. If there's someone here today that's never put their shovel down, right now, could they call out to you? Let them call out to you right now. Let them say, Jesus, you're Lord. I'm done. I'm throwing it down. If there's someone here who's been warring against you, may right now they beat that sword back into a plow. And we bow the knee to you. It's the only place that we get to receive the promises. And all those promises are good and sweet in your presence. In Jesus' name, God's people said, let's worship together if you'll stand to your feet.